uh, for hard capacity deal with Jonathan and Diane uh, Wilson. And uh, my name is Guy House. Uh, my wife and I just uh, lost with Mark nine days ago now. Eight days ago. So, yeah, so we're here and we're excited and so excited to introduce uh, these two major speakers of who I had the pleasure of meeting for the first time about five minutes ago. But um, one thing I do, I, I got a chance to be at their church um, uh, a few months ago, and I was, I was reading their Bibles who shared to me about uh, uh, Pastor Jonathan and his heart to serve the local church and build up leaders. Um, and, they, and, and, and Pastor Diana, as far as uh, they come from Australia, they were sitting over here uh, in 2006, if I understand correctly, after both of them have combined 60 years of, of this ministry experience and reaching the lost and reaching the hearts and wanting to empower people to live their best life. Uh, uh, Pastor Diana is a national best-selling author. Uh, she's written, I believe, more than uh, the three books, I think, that were on Ten books, excuse me. I'm so sorry. They only listed a few, so I'm, <laughs> so I'm so sorry. But um, but they are just have so much wisdom. This one about reading here, and just the way uh, a few months ago I was at an Ark Extended meetup at their church, and the way they opened up the facility speaks to the heart of, of who they are to want to build up the local church and the leadership in that church and empower them. So excited to hear from them today and to hear what they have for us. So. Um, Turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, good to be with you this afternoon and uh, at this session. So glad that you could come. Um, as you can tell, we live in Southern California, but you can tell by my accent that I'm not a Californian. And grew up in England, uh, lived for 30 plus years in Australia. My wife's Australian, and we lived in Southern California for 12 years, so uh, so we love it here in this part of the world, so kind of an interesting background, but uh, I'm glad that you could come today. I want to share with you, uh, we want to share about team leadership development and organization, and the t- I titled the message, Heart Capacity Gift. Um, so... What we're going to do is I'm going to speak for around 20 minutes and then my wife's going to speak for about 20 minutes and then we'll open it up to Q&A and you can ask uh, any questions that you have. Um, how many people, just to get an idea of who's in the room, how many people here are uh, lead pastors? Okay, how many people here are like in the second chair, you're like a 2IC, okay? And then the rest would be... Uh, I guess, a, a combination of different people in different roles and positions in the church. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background, for, uh, my background, I've been uh, 12 years as a lead pastor of our church, Newport Church, which is in uh, the Irvine, Newport, Irvine area in Southern California. Uh, so Guy and I have been co-pastoring that church for 12 years. Prior to that, I was 28 years in Australia in one church, uh, that is was became Hillsong Church, and I know the senior associate pastors there at that church during that time. So I've had experience at just about every level, from starting out with a small group uh, to becoming a a, a uh, area pastor and going on full time staff, and then from there becoming a campus pastor, senior associate pastor, and now. A, a lead pastor, so I've experienced leadership at multiple levels, so uh, I'm going to be sharing out of that background, and, and hopefully we'll be able to touch on things that are, are relevant to people at whatever stage of leadership you're at, whatever responsibility you have. So, um, when I was thinking about uh, this subject, obviously one of the classic passages in the Bible that I think relates to uh, team selection and organizational structure is the passage that I guess everyone here is familiar with when Moses uh, had taken the children of Israel out of Egypt or led the children of Israel out of Egypt and he's in the wilderness and he's day after day from dawn to dusk he's trying to solve everybody's problems and his father-in-law Jethro says to him the thing that you're doing is not good and all of us need to understand that very often we can be doing a good thing, but the thing that we're doing is not good. And so he, he brings him a 
better way of going about how to select leaders and then how to structure and, uh, and, and create an organization that is going to be able to meet the needs of everybody uh, in the nation of Israel. And of course, we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about a fairly significant sized church, probably around 3 million people. So we don't have to do what, what he did. But um, I want to just read a passage this um, and, and, and just so that we can refamiliarize ourselves with this. Uh, he said, if you keep doing this, uh, you'll only wear yourself and these people out. The work is too heavy for you, cannot handle it alone. Listen now and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. This will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Well, if you're a church leader, you want your people to go home satisfied. And um, so Jethro said, you've, first of all, you've got to select the right leaders. How many of you know how important that is, selecting the right leaders? Um, he said, select capable men from the people. Um, then he said, create the right organizational structure. So you've got to have a structure. You've got to have leaders of 10, of 50s, of hundreds, of thousands. Um, and then... Uh, having created the right organizational structure, you have to put the right leaders in the right place. So three things that we have to do. Number one, select the right leaders. Number two, create the right structure. Number three, put the leaders in the right place. And uh, uh, so Moses had the job of identifying the right leaders. And I know, and I guess it's your experience, that that is one of the most important things in church leadership is to identify the right leaders and have the right people who are working with you. So how, how do you go about that? Um, my experience, both in Australia and here, has always been that we've, we've selected leaders from within our church. I don't think in all the years that We've been here in Australia, and, and, and we're in America right now, in the U.S. and Southern California. In all these years that we've been here, we haven't, uh, we have not hired someone in from outside, from another church. All of our leadership has come from within the church, and we've, we've, uh, uh, we, we have understood that if we're going to do that, we have to train and we have to develop leaders ourselves from within the church from the grassroots level. Now, many of those have left, and that's the reality. When you raise up leaders, leaders will leave, and sometimes they leave well, other times they don't leave so well. But if you invest in people and you're faithful with what God, who God has given to you, then I believe that as others go, you can raise up others that will come through the ranks that will be able to take their place. So leadership development has been a real focus for us. And the question always is, how do you select the right person? And there's three things uh, when it comes to leadership selection that I think are hugely important. Number one is, uh, is uh, the individual's heart. Secondly, the individual's capacity. And then thirdly, the individual's gift. So heart, capacity, gift. And we've always uh, had that uh, approach to leadership selection. I think the natural way when we're looking for someone to take a role, whether it's a worship leader, whether it's an administrator, uh, or, or a, someone in a creative role, or a youth pastor, often the, the, the natural way to go about selection is to look for the most gifted individual. 
Who is the most gifted individual that we have? Who's the most gifted worship leader? Who's the most gifted administrator? Who's, who's the most gifted? And then capacity, obviously they need to have capacity, and then you kind of tag on heart at the end, okay? But if their heart's not quite right, we, we'll sort it out. We'll, we'll deal with it. Uh, their heart will change. But the reality is, um, we found, and I've seen it over and over again over 40 years of church life, I've seen that actually if the heart is not right, then there are going to be issues down the track. And the Word of God says in the book of Proverbs, guard your heart above all else, for out of it flow the issues of life. So the issues that are going to come out of an individual's life all have to do with the heart. Lucifer did not have a gift problem. He was the most gifted worship leader in heaven. He had a heart problem. He didn't have a capacity problem. He had a heart problem. Absalom didn't have a gift problem or a capacity problem. He had a heart problem. Uh, Judas did not have a gift problem. He had a heart problem. Demas, who left Paul and deserted Paul, didn't have a gift problem. He had a heart problem. So the reality is the heart is the most important thing. So how do you, how do you gauge where someone's heart is at? Um, and the only way that you, 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 you find where someone's heart is at is, is over a period of time. That's why the Apostle Paul said, don't lay hands on people suddenly. He wasn't saying don't lay hands and pray for people, you know. Don't be quick to lay hands on people that are sick. Be slow. Don't be quick to lay hands on people and appoint them to positions of leadership. So we have always had as our, as our order of uh, selection, first of all, heart, second, capacity, third, gift. Because if their heart is right, their capacity can grow, and their gift will grow. Now, obviously, if you're looking to put someone in a position as a worship pastor, if they can't play an instrument, they can't sing, they can't lead worship, probably they're not in the right place. So I'm talking about people that are in their zone. But for someone that's in their zone, hearts, they can grow in their capacity. How do you grow in your capacity? Just by picking up something heavier, by taking on more responsibility by giving people ever-increasing levels of responsibility. So our ethos has always been function before title. Give someone a job and look at how they function within that role before you give them the title. And many times we've had people functioning in roles for years before we've given them the title because at the end of the day, the title is just a description of their function. So uh, we're looking for heart first, we're looking for capacity, and then, and, and then we're looking for gift. And when we, when we look at those areas and when we, when we select people for leadership, their gift is going to be, their gift is going to grow, their capacity will grow, and their gift is going to grow over a period of time. John Maxwell quotes um, in... Five levels of leadership. He quotes Earl Nightingale and says, if, if a person will spend one hour a day on the same subject for five years, that person will become an expert on that subject. So people can grow in their gifting. People can grow in their capacity. But if the heart's not right over a period of time, there's going to be issues that flow out of it. And usually the more successful they are, and the more accolades they get, that's when what's in them will really come out of them. So I just want to encourage you, whatever area you're in, if you're a senior leader or if you're another, if you're working alongside a senior leader and you're recommending people for a position or a role, always look at their heart first. Because that's going to be what determines their longevity. And, and, and to a large degree, we've had a, we've had a great deal of longevity in our leadership because it's it, because that's been our criteria for leadership selection. So, you know, do they have the right? Do they have the right spirit? Jesus said, "Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." Do they love the vision? 
Um, do they love the church? Do they love the senior leaders? No good have putting someone in a role if they love the church but can't stand the senior leaders. There's going to be problems down the track. Um, do they see the, their position as simply an agenda to move their, themselves forward? Um, do they love and understand the culture of the church? They're all good questions. Are they raving fans? Uh, how, how contagious are they? What, 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 you know, when people come into contact with them, what's, what effect do they have on other people? Is it positive or is it negative? Are they, are they uh, spreading the vision or are they contaminating people with, a, with, with issues that they have? So team selection is hugely, hugely important. And then team training. I, 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 I obviously, as you select people in a team role and team position, then you, we need to train those teams. And if you're in a church starter and you have a lot of people that are volunteers that maybe don't have experience, we had to, we, when we started, we had to pretty much throw people into positions uh, or, or functions or roles or responsibilities uh, without really having had a great deal of time to train them. Uh, you know, not even time to put them through the growth track. Um, we didn't have a growth track then, but to, to take time to train them. And we always said that we were building our church one by one, but leading it two by two. So from the very beginning, we started putting people, uh, an inexperienced person with a more experienced person, so that the inexperienced person could learn from the experienced person on the job training. So basically, I do, you watch, first set, set two, we do together, third, soft, third set, you do, I watch, and then you can release them into more responsibility in that role. So, uh, and then after that, from there, uh, to make sure that we were continually investing and are continually investing into and speaking into leaders. If leaders are not receiving that investment of our time and of, uh, of our, um, uh, our leadership, then it doesn't take long before people become discouraged. Um, this morning we heard an, an, an awesome message on do not, you know, don't grow weary with doing good. And the reality is that our teams, especially in a startup, uh, in those startup years when you have a, a high percentage of volunteers, it's easy for those teams to become weary. And that's where we need to be making sure that uh, not only through uh, their oversight, that we are continually investing in our leaders because uh, they're like you and I. We all leak and we need... You know, we need investment. We need to continue to invest in, in people um, with uh, not just task-related, but relationally-related uh, activities. And we found that wherever our teams are meeting together, we encourage them to build relationship outside of the task. Uh, not just on the weekend when they may be fulfilling a role, but outside of that um, where they can be building relationships and, and keep encouraging one another in the work. So I'm going to just touch on this because my time is almost up and I want to get Di to come and, come and speak. But Jethro moves from team selection to team organization. And um, he talks about leaders of 10, 20, and 50. Um, so when it comes to organization... Um, and when we started our church, I began to think about a team. I began to think about the church. And Paul the Apostle uh, uses the example probably more than any other example. When he talks about the church, he talks about the body, the body of Christ. And I began to look at the organization of the church more than um, a management structure and more as Paul does, as a body. And when you look at a body, there are three main components. There's spirit, 
and you can add soul to that, spirit and soul, but this is spirit. There's the structure, which is our frame, our skeletal structure, and then there's the systems. We, all, we have 10 systems, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, our um, digestive system. And when you look at those, they are, all of those are integrated. So if the church is healthy, and if the organization of the church is healthy, then all three of those things need to be healthy. So first of all, we should be spirit-led. So the spirit has to come first. So to me, and to us from the very beginning, what's been most important to us has been the spirit of the church. Uh, in 3 John, John writes, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So it's the soul of the church prospering. It's the spirit of the church healthy. Caleb was different because he had a different spirit. And so when I'm talking, when we talk about the spirit, I'm not talking about necessarily about the spiritual aspect of the church, which of course we need to keep on track. But it's the, the spirit of the church is the, the morale of the church. It's the, it's, it's the heart of the church. And, and, and if that's healthy, then that has to be central to everything that we do. So the, so the spirit of the church has to be healthy. And in fact, um, when uh, uh, Jethro um, talks to, um, uh, uh, he, when Jethro talks to Moses, he, he, talks, about, uh, he talks about that. Um, and he talks about people who um, are trustworthy, uh, people who have the right spirit. He said, select people, not just because they're capable, but select people with the right spirit. So the, a healthy spirit, keeping that spirit. And what shapes the spirit of the church is the culture of the church. So the culture of the church has to be friendly to what we're wanting to achieve. Is it, is it a positive culture? Is it a healthy culture? Is it an encouraging culture? Is it a culture that encourages people to build uh, relationships? Is it, a, is it a culture that's releasing people? The culture of the church is going to be what gives the church, the spirit of the church, what we want it to be. And what we have found is if you build the right culture, the culture is kind of like the rails on a railroad that keeps it on, on track with the vision of the church. And very often... Um, rather than having to, that the culture will take care of the deviations that take place in leaders. The leaders, you know, some people will make choices and decisions and say things and, and, and things will happen in the church. We don't want to be continually being the watchdog that's having to correct every single thing that, that's happening in the church or leaders having that kind of uh, correctional structure we, or culture, we want to be, uh, we want to let the culture do that. And if you build the right culture, the culture will, will keep the church on track with where you want it to go. Does that make sense? So the second thing is uh, once the spirit is, the spirit is right. And here's the interesting thing. The structure, um, the structure uh, has to uh, has to be obviously the, the the purpose of having the right structure is for the health of the body, and what Moses is saying to Josh, uh, to Jethro uh, saying to Moses is this structure, this structure is not going to work. It's going to put too much strain on you. So structure, it, it's really important that we have the right structure for our particular sake of development. If you're planting a church. Don't put a rigid structure in place. A baby is born with a flexible structure because it's growing and it's changing shape. And a church in the early days is growing, it's changing shape. Don't put people in positions. It's easier. I learned once someone taught me as a young Christian, it's easier to, uh, yeah, it's easier to put someone in a position. It's much harder to get them out. Yeah. Um, so let, it be, let, let, let the, the structure breathe. Uh, let it be flexible and have a structure that's going to help uh, help the 
the church develop and grow at the pace that you're developing and growing. Don't be too quick to put on stuff. Um, you know, you can grow a church to a significant size with volunteer staff. Um, so the structure uh, needs to support the spirit of the church and not be a drain on it. And then, of course, the systems of the church that you implement, and there are multiple systems when it comes to your um, yeah, the systems that, you know, for, uh, for rostering volunteers, when it comes to systems that, um, uh, you know, for follow-up of new Christians, when it comes to integration of new people into the life of the church, all of these systems uh, need to be put into place so we're not continually reinventing the wheel, not putting a strain on the system uh, and, on, and on the body. These systems need to be put into place. And, and what I have found, what I've observed in our own church, and I've talked to other, many other pastors and leaders, is you, if there's a problem in the church, it's usually in one of those three areas. It's usually in the area of the spirit of the church, it's a structural issue, or it's one of the systems in the church that is putting a heavy load on people. This system was unsustainable, a load on people that is unsustainable. And as we all know, if you have a problem with your digestive system, it's going to affect the way you feel. Uh, if you have a debilitating illness, it's going to wear you down. It's going to affect your spirit. If you have a, a back that's out of alignment, it's going to affect the way you feel. It's going to affect your morale. And so uh, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, it, it, it gives us that picture of all those parts of our body, of our being working together. Spirit, structure, and systems. So if you have questions after, I want to get Di to come up and, and share now. But if you have questions after, we're going to have some time to to uh, uh, answer any questions, but heart capacity gift, spirit, structure, systems are two templates that you can use at whatever level or area of church life you are in to select the right leaders and create the right organizational structure that's going to help you move forward. So why don't you give welcome as you come to Jonathan and I have been married for uh, 21 years. Ooh. We have six kids and three grandkids. And we met at Harvard College. He was a teacher, I was a student. <laughs> and he proposed on a missions trip, so that's our background. Wise man. Wise man. <laughs> and uh, seriously, when I say he's taught me like, everything I know, um, I'm not even kidding. When I first married Jonathan, I was an author. I was an author at uh, 26 years old. Speaking is my second language. Um, this is not my preference. I love, I love to write. And my first book in Australia became a national bestseller. That was not my plan. So I do have um, published books, and um, I brought some of them. If, if you want help, body, soul, spirit, identity. Um, I kind of touch on a lot of things. Um, I have been writing for over 20 years. Um, but today I want to share some thoughts from a book that I, I wrote in the first, sorry, after the first five years of our church plant, and it's called It's Time. And um, I knew that we would be um, having a women, women's ministry in our church. Um, obviously, many of you will know or be at least familiar with Hillsong Church, that little thing down under the town. So my role at Hillsong Church was, um, I was actually... Um, given the role of looking after sisterhood in the city campus and then um, must have done something right and then was given um, the role of sisterhood lead role in over both campuses in Sydney and um, was a very much behind the scenes person. I loved serving, I loved um, hosting, I loved encouraging and uh, any time I was thrown a microphone I did it out of obedience through this definitely not my, my primary passion. So um, I, I will say this, that when I became, uh, when Jonathan and I got engaged, I did not see my life as it is now. In fact, I didn't even see my life, I didn't see myself as a pastor's wife. I saw pastor's wives, but I didn't see me. 
if you know what I mean. This is back in the day. Some of you weren't even born, right? <laughs> but I remember, um, just, I just loved God. I wanted to serve God. When we got, when we got engaged in um, Ghana, on Busia Beach, West Africa, I, th- I thought that's where we would live. And God said, it's Newport Beach. Orange County. Ha ha. Ha ha. If you passed in here locally, you know what that ha ha means. It's like, this is like rough terrain. Spiritually, it's rough terrain. And you know, I've got palm trees where I came from. Sydney's got plenty of palm trees. I didn't come here for the palm trees. I came here because God called us to be here. I want to share three things um, with you that are like headlines before I get into some um, just leadership principles. Everything is in this book. If I just do three of them today, you can read them yourself later. But, you know, when Jonathan did not, like, I'm not a man, and I don't want to be a man. And he does not want me to be a man. So when we got married, I never ever, there was never a sense of like, I want his role, I want his, I want to be his, you know, I want to puppet him, I want to make sure that he does everything I think, you know, we should do. That's never ever been my passion. In fact, um, I'm so glad that I'm not a man and don't have that weight of responsibility that God has given my husband as the senior leader in our church. We co-pastor together, but I know what my role is. And I'm very comfortable and very happy in that role. And I run my race hard. So the three things I know that are important that I've learned um, are femininity. I'm a woman. So there's no use me acting like, you know, a man in woman's clothing or whatever that whole scenario can be. But I'm not in competition with any of the men in our church who lead. I love them dearly. I respect and honour them. So femininity is really important. The other is adaptability. And you know the word submission? I actually love it. We, I made sure it went in our vows because I understand the power of that. That means uh, it's on his shoulders a lot of the time. And I want to be tucked right in under there as we are one because that's the role God's given him. So my, my um, role is to be adaptable, to be the helper. That doesn't take away. I'm, I'm quite a strong person. Right. A little bit shy, you know, like I said, microphones, whatever. But when it comes to, le- like, we're both, like, leaders. And um, I know that my best wife role and co-senior pastor role is to be his helper, not to be his aggravator. <laughs> Although sometimes when you help him, you accidentally aggravate, if you know what I mean. So it's accidental. And the third thing is longevity. Longevity. Femininity, adaptability, and longevity. I am in this for the long haul, serving Jesus for the rest of my days. And as a woman, and um, who's been in ministry for, for over 20 years now, but also in this uh, church planting scene, it's interesting with um, when you have people come from other cultures into a church. I call it, I don't like the term clash of cultures, even though we all know what that feels like, right? Someone comes in and tells you how you should do things and why don't you do it like this. And I can remember... Some mornings, my husband, when you, know, you, you plant a church, your cell phone is the church phone. Or is that the stuff? Okay. And I can remember hearing my husband, like a muffled conversation, really early in the morning, like 6.30, quarter to 7. I'd find him in the closet, and he'd be on the phone. Some man would have called him, insisting on how he should do something different with the men's ministry. And I'm like, I'm too Australian for this. He needs, he needs the red button, this guy, like, whatever. Um, but when it comes to, like, longevity, we have to remember that we are going to attract people that are going to come in with all of their stuff. And, you know, give me a good heathen person that has had, like, this rip-roaring, awful, poor wretch life, um, who actually is grateful for their salvation. Give me line them all up. But when you have this, this plethora of floating Christian opinion... It's really, that's the thing that would cause more burnout than I think anything else possibly could. And so what do we do to get over that? What do we do to be in this for the long haul? We have to be forgivers, and we have to be forgetters. And we've got to make sure that we say, hey, Jesus, this is not personal. is very personal, but it is not about me. I'm not making this a peer thing happening here. Here's a question that I always ask. 
what do you want? How can I help you with what you want? Right, because this is actually not a conversation about the two of us. This is about, I'm your pastor, how can you help you with what you want? And then choose to not take it personally. Do not ever get offended. Be a forgiver. Keep moving on. Eyes on Jesus. Amen. So one thing Jonathan has always said to me that um, sometimes it's good and I need it, other times I want to cry. But he, if I'm having a pick out for whatever reason, could be the fact that we've got so many children, could be the fact that... Um, I still write books and I'm also leading our sisterhood and whatever. could have been anything. But he says to me, be a leader. Be a leader. And I receive that from him because I know I have to be a leader. Whether it's a leader in my own home, with my, you know, making sure that my kids do not see mummy knocking down. No thanks. They don't need any of that. They're a pastor's child. Pastor's child living in a goldfish bowl. The last thing they need is any of that. Be a leader. So I want to just share with you some leadership observations um, these have come out of, like I said, our first five years of leading women's ministry at Newport Church. And I noticed something develop over probably the first three months, and it was all to do with this, this uh, blend of cultures where there were some older women wanting to influence the younger women and get alongside them and become mentor, discipling gurus. And I'm like, no, we're, we're one church, one vision. We've got it. And it was actually a really interesting uh, thing to negotiate. And I just had to, I had to just stay in my lane and keep loving people and keep being a leader. And a leader is not being bossy. A leader is not trying to be the man, like I said. A leader is just actually understanding what God has put on your life, that godly authority. Yeah. Amen? So here we go. Number one, leaders live it. I'm not just a leader at church, I'm a leader at home, I'm a leader when I go to the mall, I'm a leader wherever it went. We, we've lived in this area for 12 years, and um, after 12 years, that's a long time in Orange County. Let me just say, that's a long time for Orange County, so I can't go anywhere without thinking somebody sees me, not even on the road. Leaders have got to live it, so I've got to have one life, not a double life by any stretch. Number two, leaders tune into it. You're in touch with the reality of those you lead. And I'm speaking from the aspect of leading women because I hope you do want to have women in your church, um, but I lead men as well. But when it comes to women, there are seasons that men don't have. Yes, okay, so when a family has a baby, the father is having a baby too, the mother is having a baby, but most times, unless the dad chooses to be a stay-at-home dad, the woman's life changes, like, forever, while that baby is small, there is a different season. So I've had to help our girls relax. I had somebody at Sisterhood last week, her baby is three weeks old, and she asked how she could like, get involved with more leadership. And I just laughed at her. I said, honey, that baby owns you. you that baby, until that baby is four months old, that baby thinks you and it are the same thing. You're doing everything you're doing now. How about we give you a round of applause and I gave you a cheer and she cried and like, my goodness, people put a lot of pressure. We've got to tune into where people are at and whether they, they might have all the time in the world but they've got no capacity in their soul because they're going through something. We've just got to not push people. We've got to lead them. Number three, leaders direct with precision. Followers love clear and precise direction. You know what I'm talking about. And it's like it's up to us to actually provide that in communication, in follow-up, doing simple things like, you know, communication 101 is you've, you've, you've given a directive to ask what that person, please let me know what I just said to you to make sure I was clear. And leaders know you've got to own it if it's not clear. It's up to us to be clear. Uh, number four, leaders notice everything. That's annoying. You know, that observant eye. And I've got a child who is overly observant. She's now... 20, about to turn 21, which is good because she's learned to just bite it. But when she was like 14, she just saw everything. And I said, Dal, you're not wrong, but you just got to shut up. No one wants to know, and I don't want to know. I know you can see it all. It's like that just, like, sees everything, sees all the, the fluff on the carpet, notices when somebody's, you know, button is undone on the stage, or there's a bottle of water that should be there, a dirty cup of coffee cup. I'm like, yes, okay, great. So now, we observe everything, yes, but we choose when to talk about those things and to whom because we don't want to pull people down or embarrass them. Number five, leaders choose their battles. That's right. I'd be very slow to be shooting off fast texts. And if I'm annoyed with someone or something and if I have not had the time to sit down with them and talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, then I'm usually overly affectionate. 
I'm not going to get mad on a text. We have to have a Mack truck relationship for me to ever do that, and I've been doing this a long time. I've seen relationships be destroyed because of that. Just, you know, I'm like, wow, you should have just maybe sat on that for three days, you know, like Joseph did to his siblings. Okay, in jail. All right. Um, Number six, leaders value their families. And my favourite thing in the world is home. And I've, you know, I take my kids on the journey, but I'm also aware of the, what is, what the journey is actually like, and they don't need to see all of it. Okay, so the cockpit is for the pilot, and sometimes they just need to be in the back having milk and cookies. But they're still on the plane with you, you know what I'm talking about? And family is very, very important. Uh, number seven, leaders are creative. And what I mean by creative, it's not just singing, dancing, drawing, it's not just the arts. It's you are creative, creative because we've been created in the image of God, which means problem solving is essential if you're a leader. I love puzzles, not physical ones, you know, but I love, if there's a problem, everything is solvable. We we love and serve a big God, so we've got to ask God, okay, help me. Wisdom of Solomon. No one needs to cut the baby in half today. We can work this out. Number eight, leaders value what God values. Number nine, leaders lead by perspective, not power. Power tripping is the most ineffective way to lead anybody. Number 10, leaders draw the best out of their followers. In 12 years, I'm really happy to say that there are um, women and men on our team who are way better at what they do than I ever could do. And that is fruit of my life and fruit of my ministry. Just like when my kids are excelling in life, I'm not jealous of them. I could not be more excited. My whole job was to raise them. And so we've got to make sure we're always drawing the best and don't get threatened because if God has given you like a Billy Graham, what are you going to do? Not let him like do the obstacle? You know what I'm saying? Like if they're really, really good, let them be really, really, really good on your watch, right? Um, Leaders, number, tw- uh, number I'm going to skip 11. Uh, number 12, leaders lead with grace and truth. Grace first, grace is anesthetic, truth is scalpel. Grace and truth, not truth and grace, which is like cut, 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 and then a Band-Aid. And they're still bleeding. And you're, they're like, oh my gosh, what was that? Anesthetic first, grace first, then truth. That's the Bible way. Uh, number 13, leaders lead with wisdom. Number 14, I love this because I have seen my fair share of this not happening. Leaders are organized. Disorganization is so disrespectful. It's an indulgence. And so if you are not organized and you don't want to be organized, then pay somebody to be organized for you so that somebody's organized. (laughs) Make sure that you have um, organizational skills. You're either working on them punctuality is a value don't walk in you know walk in 15 minutes early not five minutes late with a coffee that's not in my notes that's just the way we roll right (laughs) um leaders correct by redirect confrontation is a very interesting thing and it should be reserved as a as a last measure the person would have to be willfully unresponsive and deliberately destructive for confrontation. I think confrontation comes way too quickly and unnecessary. We wonder why people like clash and burn and leave. Redirection is how I parent. Now, am I um, one of those parents that just lets my kids do anything? Oh, no. My, my three older ones, I still give them this and they are like, you know. But redirection means you're actually trying to help them. You know, correction is so, like... It's so confrontation. Sorry, confrontation is so unnecessary most times. If we if we um, redirect, that's awesome. And if redirection doesn't work, we can do a really encouraging correct. But let's just try and lead without so much confrontation. And lastly, leaders dream a bigger dream. It's our responsibility because within my dream are the seeds of my congregation's dreams. And I am responsible to keep dreaming a bigger dream, making more room in my heart. The heart has greater capacity than we ever know. And making sure that, like I said, femininity, because I'm a woman in ministry, adaptability, my role is to be the best helper I can be, and longevity means I want to serve Jesus for the rest of my life. Amen. Amen. Amen.
So I'm going to get Jonathan to come up. We might just have a couple of questions. But if if Jonathan and I, with our 60 whatever years, is, that's I've had six and you've had, you know, how many years of this? I don't know. I just had 20. He's had the rest. Um, if you want to contact us at all, you can direct message either of us or both of us. So it's Jonathan W. Wilson is um, his Insta. Mine is Diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, underscore Wilson. And we will respond to you and help you if you need resource, if you've got a question, if you're, if you're going to pop in and see our church, we'd love to see you. So um, thanks. Over to you. All right. Thank you, Diane. Um, <clears throat> I know I'm uh, uh, highlighting this book that Di's already talked about, but I honestly, uh, this is an amazing book. So 101 messages in it. It's the best cheat sheet you'll ever get when it comes to messages. If you want to get inspiration for some messages for small, you know, leadership meetings or whatever, it's full of full of messages, and there it's available out there at the bookshop. Um, do you want to give this one away, Diane, yeah, to someone yeah. who would like this? Who would, okay, you were the first one to put your hand up. Here you are. Thank you. But that's a, that's a book that will help you or help someone in your world. It's full of great, great teaching. Oh, there's another one. Okay. Awesome. All right. Do we have any questions? Um, do we have, a mic- we have a microphone so that everyone can hear? Yeah, you had mentioned um, that you can grow a sizable church uh, with a large volunteer base. Um, what would be some best practices to try to do that? Uh, what, in, in recruiting volunteers? Yeah, having a large volunteer base uh, with, with a, you know, as you grow your church. And- yeah, I think we've always, uh, I think it really begins with, uh, we've, we've never kind of, we've always had a culture, and I think most people here would come from churches where you have a culture where we realize that the only way we're going to build the church is through volunteers. Yeah. Um, we're not going to build the church through hiring. In fact, over the years, we've had many people that have moved on to other churches that I would have liked to have hired, people that we've trained from the grassroots level up, but we just didn't have the financial ability to hire them, and they've ended up, they've had other positions and other offers, and they've gone on to other churches, and they've done really well. And I think that's always going to be a reality. To be honest, I always want to have a church, in a sense, where we've got more leaders than, than we could hire. And if they want to go into ministry and then they go, well, that's, that's a part of who we are. But we've always, we've always developed a culture that where it's a privilege to serve in the house of God. Totally. It's not a duty. Yes, right. Um, we've always created a, a second mile culture, but great lives are built on the second mile. Great churches are built on the second mile. That great marriages and relationships are built on the second mile. Yep. And I, I taught for the first year of our church, I taught a series uh, called Creating Kingdom Culture. Because I said, we want to create, we want to build a church that has a kingdom culture. We all come from different backgrounds and so on. But what does the Bible say? What's the, what's the kingdom culture that Jesus created that, that is in his word? And a lot of that has to do with, you know, uh, the, the privilege of serving, of ownership and so on. And so we, it's always been a privilege in our church to serve. Um, and I think that's where most of our volunteers have come from. And then we, uh, you know, we, we always encourage people, if they want to get involved from the platform, we're always talking about uh, there's a seat for you at the table. Yeah. Uh, we want to serve people, but there's a seat for you to come at the table. You can come and sit at the table and, and, and serve. And we have a tea night once a month. And on that tea night, we get our team together, but we also tell everyone in the church, hey, if you want to find out how you might get involved in the life of the church, yep. uh, an area that you could you, you could uh, serve in. Come to team night. I usually will speak for about 15, 20 minutes, and we break up into different teams, and there's a place for people to go to find out how they might get involved. But that's, I think it comes out of the culture even more than the system. Mm-hmm. If you have a spirit of volunteering in the church, you're gonna you're gonna, always gonna have people that they're born into that and, and, and that yep. will become part of their DNA. Yep. I just add to that. Um, another phrase that we use a lot is find your place at your own pace. 
Some people are like the diehards, like 24-7, I just want to be in the house of God doing anything. You know, there's always that remnant. And then there are other people that, that want to serve God and they can literally only do it once a month and we celebrate whatever people want to do. And then we make sure that we have a, a culture of thankfulness. We thank people. Some people don't need that thanks. I'm good, I'm doing it for the Lord. Other people are like, I don't think I'm doing a good job because no one's told me. So that's just a couple of things. So next question. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks so much for the great session. Really appreciate what you had to share. Diane, you were sharing a little bit about the interaction between you and Jonathan as, uh, as you co-pastor. Um, boy, I just loved hearing that. Um, is there anything that you could add to that, Jonathan, maybe in terms of how you interact with your wife, how you uh, make space, um, how your staff interact with the two of you as a couple of leadership? Yeah, I I think uh, we've always had we've always approached our role in leadership as that, that we are leading and, and pastoring the church together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always you know uh, we've always uh, talked about uh, not just our vision but the implementation of our vision when you know we talk about leaders and you know potential roles and positions that we could put people into and so. Um, I've always included her in, 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 in pretty much everything, except for those things that I think she doesn't need to have to worry about carrying, that maybe she's not structured to carry, but I am. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I know that for some people, they may feel, well, okay, I should be able to put all of the weight that I carry on her. But I don't feel, I feel like we're, we're structured differently. She, you yeah. know, I'm a male, she's a female. Mm-hmm. She sees things I can't see. I see things she can't see. We appreciate and value those differences. And, you know, but some of the kind of, some of the more, mm-hmm. some of the aspects of the, maybe the finances, the, um, uh, you know, major decisions that, or major things that are happening uh, that I don't feel like, I need to burden her with, I don't Mm. share those things until it's time for that to happen. But I think it's just, uh, I I don't know whether this is answering your question, but, and and, and there's an understanding, we have a basic understanding that if there's anything that she feels about that strongly Mm -hmm. that we ought not to do, you know, we don't move until we're both in agreement. And I'm talking about major major decisions. And there was a situation recently where there was a tension that was there that was based on a a decision that we needed to make. And we came to the place where Di said to me, okay, I've just got to trust you on this decision. I don't necessarily think this is the way we should go. And I made the decision, she allowed me to make the decision. I made the decision that God intervened that we didn't need to do. Uh, See what happens. Do it after all, God. But because I think it was part part of that whole process was what God was doing in me and us in in that whole decision making process. But um, can I just add something? Yeah, it's it's it is a you know, and and everyone is has different you know their wives have different strengths, husbands different strengths, and but I think the involvement is is hugely important and the respect that comes with that. And in more recent times, um, so we're both decision makers, but what we don't do is we don't make decisions together in front of people. Um, we, so basically, as long as there is one of us at a table, we're able to make that decision. I will not make a decision that I'm not 100% sure of, that I, I know that Jonathan would be no problem, and I'm the one who knows him best, and I'm the one who's really submitted to him. So... We don't do meetings where there's two decision makers at the table. So, for instance, he'll take the load of meetings on a Wednesday, and I do this thing called Wifey Wednesday, which means he, after that massive day of meetings, uh, comes home to his wife. I think that's a good thing. I don't know. Like, smell the dinner cooking, and, you know. So I do Wifey Wednesday, and I stay out of it because we're too strong at the same table. And, um, yeah, decision making is... He's the boss. It's all good. Okay, do we have one more question? This lady who's jumping up now. <laughs> so um, I love the 
Sunita. And um, number 15 is talking about leaders correct by redirect. Mm -hmm. And I was just, uh, I would like to hear more about uh, at what point would you correct? You know, or what if, if, if maybe we're correcting too much, at least what my observation could be is that sometimes correcting people, um, people don't receive it uh, as well. And uh, sometimes uh, the result of it is not mm -hmm. uh, people getting nearer, but kind of getting farther. Um, just wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about that part of correction. Okay, I'll let Di, um, you know, add to that. But from my perspective, I mean, we, I was just talking to some uh, pastors earlier that we live in a generation where the word authority, I think someone mentioned it this morning, authority is a dirty word. You know, people don't want to understand authority. Mm. I'm, not a, I'm not a millennial. I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> and uh, I grew up uh, where I understood that if I wasn't under authority, I would have no authority. And that's a biblical principle. Amen. The centurion mm -hmm. who came to Jesus only received the miracle because he understood authority. So we, you know, and it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult subject this because I think people have the wrong idea of authority. Authority isn't to crush us. Mm -hmm. Authority is to empower us. Amen. Mm -hmm. So the more we, we create a culture where people understand true biblical authority, which is not abuse of power or abuse of authority, it's authority to serve, but it only comes when we're under authority. I mean, uh, you know, imagine if we had a military where there was no submission to authority. I mean, we would not be wanting our tax dollars to go to towards that. We understand that. So what I would say is that when it comes to addressing issues, it comes back to culture. Mm -hmm. and, and culture is a lot to do with the why behind the what rather than the what. Yeah. So correction has to do with what, culture has to do with why. Mm. So if someone is doing something, you know, maybe someone's being, I don't know, someone's, someone's a, a, a host or an usher, and they're being, you know, very kind of offhand or rude to people. Uh, correction says, you can't talk to people like that. Uh, explaining the culture, we take time to say to someone, hey, we, this is someone, these people are coming here. We, you know, I don't want to get to, off, off on the track, but seeking. We have a certain way of seeking people. And we, we, we you know, part of our culture, we put out less, because we have movable seats, we put out less seats than we need to get people to fill up the front. There's nothing worse than speaking to a big room with empty seats, you know, because everyone's got it everywhere. Well, people don't like being told where to sit. And, and so we've had to train our team how to talk to them and how to communicate that to them. And at the end of the day, if they don't sit there, just let, let them be. Don't, you know, we, we don't want to turn them away from the church because they won't sit where we want them to sit. But there's a why behind the what. And then people say, well, this is crazy. Why don't we just put out more seats? You know, and the ushers get upset because we're putting out, we have to, two services, put them out, put them back, this makes no sense at all. Yes, it does. There's a why behind the what. Yeah. So I would say the culture, the why is the, the most important thing when it comes to communicating yep. those kinds of things. I was just thinking about a time when we drove home from Disneyland um, to our house, which is super close, and Jonathan got pulled over by Highway Patrol. You can't. Oh yeah, this is true. No, it's a good, it's a good analogy, done. And um, because what what we we're in our big black suburban whatever, um, just the two of us, and then our little tiny girl who was probably five at the time, and one of her friends who was five at the time, in this big car, he's going just under ninety, and he overtakes Highway Patrol, and Highway Patrol's like wow, and we didn't know where to like where to pull over because you know we're in the carpool lane, and then we got like got in trouble so we because we wonder, I love you, but uh, pull over, pull over. Anyway, because of the, the speed and because of the responsibility of the kids in the car and because the we actually overtook the police officer, he saw, the police officer, he saw it, he had an obligation to bring correction. 
And I think it was not a redirection kind of thing for him. It, it was like, I, I can't like not get a ticket for this. But on another occasion, you can roll through a stop sign, the policeman doesn't want to do the paperwork, and he might just give you like a little slap, you know, I'll just give you, don't do that again. But it depends, if you see something firsthand that you know is going to be harmful to people, take other people out, you've got no choice but to sit down and have a conversation. But it doesn't have to be confrontational. So, um, sorry, Jonathan, about that. It was quite funny though because we really didn't know where to pull over with tourists still. So, okay, guy, thank you so much for having us. Let's give him a hand. Thank you so much.